Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Elliot Bazzano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Ovamir Anjum, Imam Khattab Endowed Chair of Islamic Studies in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at the University of Toledo, about his exciting book, Politics, Law, and Community in Islamic Thought, The Tamian Moment, published by Cambridge University Press in 2012. In the book, Overmere Andrum explores a timely topic, even though his focus is hundreds of years in the past. In order to present his topic, Professor Andrum asks a series of foundational questions, such as, how have Muslims understood ideal government and political theology? What is the role of rulers in those politics? And what does it even mean to talk about politics as a category? In Andrum's words, the relationship between Islam and politics in the classical age can neither be described as a formal divorce nor a honeymoon, but rather a tenuous and unstable separation of spheres of religious authority from political power that was neither justified in theory nor wholeheartedly accepted. The Tamian moment, a rephrasing of the Machiavellian moment, comes during the life of the prodigious author, theologian, and jurist, Ibn Taymiyyah. By honing in on Ibn Taymiyyah's magnum opus, the Repulsion of Opposing Reason and Revelation, not a political work per se, but a theological one, Andrum reflects on, among other things, tensions between community-centered and ruler-centered visions of politics, and how scholars before Ibn Taymiyyah had understood these ideas. Based on meticulous research of primary and secondary sources, Andrum's monograph will likely encourage new scholarship on the post-classical era, including the impact of Ibn Taymiyyah's ideas on later generations, as well as interests among scholars from a variety of disciplines, ranging from history and religious studies to political science and the law. I hope you enjoy the interview, and without further ado, here's my conversation with Professor Overmere Andrum. Good morning, Overmere. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning. So before we get to talking about your book, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your educational background and how you got interested in the subject. Could you give us a little bit about that? Sure. I was uh, interested in, in Islamic studies came from partly from my own background, uh, my, my mother and my, my grandmother uh, were uh, not exactly formal scholars, but self-taught. Um, they taught me Quran, and uh, so both sides of my family, my mother and father, uh, were um, involved in some kind of learning and teaching. And so I read um, a lot growing up. But my first uh, interest uh, as I went into college was modern physics um, and science. So 
tell some it wasn't uh, Islamic history or Islamic studies wasn't wasn't on my radar at that time. Um, but um, as I pursued my interest in science, um, but also being in the United States and uh, just looking at what was going on in the world, meeting many uh, people from all over the world, especially all over the Muslim world, uh, consolidated my interest in Islamic history. And um, so after my bachelor's in um, nuclear physics, I uh, went to complete my master's in social sciences uh, at the University of Chicago. Um, and then um, ultimately did my PhD at Madison, Wisconsin um, in Islamic history. And my interest in Ibn Taymiyyah it was almost accidental because my first interest as I, as I began thinking about Islamic political thought, now why I was thinking about Islamic political thought was because growing up between Pakistan and, and, and Saudi Arabia, uh, which is where Saudi Arabia is where my parents lived, that's expat. Um, and uh, I was interested in political turmoil, the Muslim world, uh, and so on. So I wanted to learn more about Islamic political thought. I had read um, a large amount of Muslim literature, contemporary Muslim literature. I felt that I was, I needed more. Um, so I started reading early literature, especially I was working on Mawardi at the time, Abul Hassan Ali Mawardi, uh, the famous Al-Ahdama Sultaniyah. This was, uh, and this interest uh, grew as I did my social masters in social science at the University of Chicago. Uh, and so I chanced upon Ibn Taymiyyah almost accidentally um, in almost a uh, kind of frustration with Islamic, early Islamic political thought. Uh, and Ibn Taymiyyah was a breath of fresh air in the kind of things I was looking at, uh, the critical approach that he had, the very commonsensical approach that he had. Um, so I came upon Ibn Taymiyyah almost you know, as, as, as any graduate student comes upon uh, a subject of interest. Now, the fact that I had read a um, significant amount of literature and tafsir and Quran and, and other stuff helped me um, to go into and, and start reading in, in his, um, uh, larger works like that few people uh, read at the time. Did did you have formative scholars that helped you get interested? You talk about some long trips that you took in your car, which inspired some of your thinking. Right. Well, uh, certainly, uh, Dr. Sherman Jackson was very important, but that came uh, quite. I mean, that came almost close to the to the end of my dissertation, um, and in fact, my my. Uh, relationship with, with him was very interesting as as whenever we met at a, after one of his lectures we argued about something and he was tremendously gracious but our uh, relationship was always that we challenged each other mm. and so once I asked him and you know when I when I said to him I want you to by my graduate I want you to sit on my, my committee and he said why would you want to do that um uh, it turned out it was a tremendously beneficial relationship for me, and I hope for him as well. Um, so, yeah, we would sit for hours, and, uh, and he was extremely gracious at a very important time in his career. Uh, you know, he would take an entire Monday, um, sit with me in his office, and, and go over. Uh, we just read together and debated a text in a way that, that reminded me of how um, you know, classical scholars must have done. So that was thrilling. Um, but um, as to the formation of this project, it was more um, a number of other things, uh, you know, 
my advisor, Michael Chamberlain, uh, said that he was working on Tamiya, uh, on writing a book that he ultimately never ended up writing. Um, so there was, you know, part of that interest came from, from there. Um, and then I, I think that what people often would have said about my book is that it's a very unusual book. It's not a, 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 a usual, uh, course of how people do PhD. I didn't pick a figure and say, I'm going to do everything. I'm going to figure out everything about this figure and then write about it. But rather it is a problem that runs throughout um, the course of Islamic history. It is a, say, a theoretical problem uh, in which I look at many figures to, um, to find my answer. And that's, um, uh, that's a, that's a much more difficult kind of intellectual problem to solve while also doing um, while also doing history. Um, it's it's you know it's not strictly demarcated by a period. Uh, it starts from the beginning of Islamic history and goes all the way to when until when I see the problem is more satisfactorily addressed uh, or the tension is you know tension comes out so. Um, and that, I think, was inspired in part by Michael Chamberlain's approach uh, to the history, which is sort of, you know, a critical of Orientalism, uh, learning from the new social history that's being done. Uh, and my own readings in, uh, especially Talal Assad's uh, 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 writings influenced me, although that doesn't show too much in my book. Uh, but generally, it was a it was a project that was born out of very broad reading in Western historiography and and uh, Orientalist writings on some Yeah, I think it's it's very clear to anyone looking at the book that you've really tackled uh, a big corpus in terms of primary non English sources as well as uh, sort of the Western canon, and I think it's it's quite impressive. So. As you're saying, you didn't focus on a figure per se, and you were focusing more on a problem, but you're, you call the second part of the book the Taimiyan moment, and you don't really talk about Ibn Taymiyyah in great length until the latter half of the book. So could you say something about who Ibn Taymiyyah was and what his why he is important for scholarship, and then what... Why don't you focus on him until the last half of the book? Right. Well, because um, see, it's it's called the Damian moment, sort of taking from another uh, an important book, the Western political history called the Machiavellian moment by a by uh, um, John Popock, who um, sort of one of the main figures in this Cambridge School of Islamic, uh, Cambridge School of, of, of Political History. And um, the idea there was that uh, I felt that the problems Ibn Taymiyyah had addressed in his book defined a moment in, in Islamic history. Um, and it was a useful way to investigate number of problems, you know, he isn't the kind of person who's writing textbooks on Islamic law or politics or tafsir. Um, none of his writings are like that. And, and so one may wonder, why is that? Um, uh, you know, all of his writings are a critical remark on everything that's been written uh, about on that subject. So that's why he was just tremendously useful um, to, for me to look at um, now, part of my project in the book, as as uh, we may get a chance to talk about, is to um, my grew out of my dissatisfaction with um, the writings on contemporary Islam and contemporary Islamic movements. Uh, reading Talal Assad sort of consolidated the sense that we just know too little about Islamic political thought. 
uh, and he encouraged me in very, you know, in very indirectly in a way to, to sort of get over the standard narrative and ask different questions. And one of the things that I was trying to do in my book was to say, can uh, have Muslims been able to critique themselves in the past? And if so, what were the terms of that critique? In other words, this idea that it's modernity that has inspired Islamic movements, it's modernity that has so shaped our tradition that we don't know anything about it, um, that yeah, there, is a, there has been this in, irreparable rupture between past Islamic past and Islamic modernity. Those are questions that were on the, sort of in the background. Uh, and I decided uh, to say, I'm going to completely set aside modernity and ask questions uh, that Muslims ask of themselves and of each other and sort of eavesdrop on that conversation. Now, I don't think that anybody can be fully successful in setting aside one's own context and questions. But, but that was part of the inspiration to go back and look at a dialogue, a very intense uh, dialogue of the high classical age when one uh, master uh, is taking on other masters. That, that's sort of part of what I'm trying to do. Uh, why I don't get to Bithynia at the end until, until the latter half is because, uh, as I noted, Bithynia is uh, you can't really read Ibn Taymiyyah, and I think that many contemporary followers of Ibn Taymiyyah make that crucial mistake that they think that you can read Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, you can take Ibn Taymiyyah's criticism of uh, of everything that came before as saying that everything was uh, worthless, and that's not true. In fact, he's engaged in constant dialogue. He was reading everyone. He was reading more than anybody else had was reading, and he, he had re he had read Ashari's more than Ashari's knew themselves. He had read the philosophers more than the philosophers knew, knew their own works. Um, so, uh, and that's and it's true of some early uh, sects in Islamic history that nobody knew about. He, he had read them, their masters, um, and that's the way to read Ibn Taymiyyah. Um, so this is true in all fields, and you know, any, any way that you any any part of Ibn Taymiyyah's works that you look at. Um, so I felt that I had to give a, um, not that Ibn Taymiyyah was, I said he wasn't my main concern, but, um, if I was, I was looking at this, this arc of uh, arguments about political, what I define as a political sphere, um, and, um, how Ibn Taymiyyah, um, uh, Many things that Ibn Taymiyyah said, without saying political, without talking in the, in the language that I was talking, many of the things that he was talking about come together um, as a critique of the classical age um, in favor of reviving the political sphere, as I, as I argue. Yeah, and so on this note, what exactly it is that political means is something you you frame your project by and explaining that, you know, it's difficult to find these distinct categories maybe ever, but maybe particularly in early Islamic history. So what, what types of texts did you examine in order to uh, explore your subject? And how, how would you, if you, if you want, how would you problematize the, the words in your title, politics, law, and community in terms of how those, frame your project and informed what types of texts you looked at? Well, so this issue of you know, vocabulary and concept is one of the central problems in my book. Can we talk about a political and Islamic history, but it's political and so on. And I, I, I define political in a way that goes uh, back at least to uh, the Greek philosophers, Aristotle and Plato. And so I, I use the word political in the sense of the whole, thinking about the whole. Um, the collectivity rather than one's own uh, one's own group um, and, or one's own you know local group and, and, and or, or one's own family and so on uh, one's own madhab um, but rather thinking about the whole and the question was how does one of course want one define the whole so I point out in my introduction that what one really is talking about when one looks at all of Muslim writers, uh, 
pre-modern Muslim writers is not political thought in the modern Western sense, but political in the pre-modern uh, sense, uh, in, in the way the Greek authors had used it, and in the, in the way that even Christian authors continue to use it for, for some time. But uh, a more appropriate term uh, for Muslims, uh, for these Muslim authors, was really umatic rather than politic, because remember, they're, they're not thinking about polis, but umma, uh, the community of the believers. And I, in my subsequent work, not so much in that book, as subsequent work, I have uh, I continue to work in this on this distinction, and I think it's proven to be rather productive and something I don't explore to its fullest extent in my book. So I'll go back to my book. Um, in my book, I say that look, you can divide up the political uh, into uh, three constituent constituent elements that you are political. You're you're talking about a collectivity um, and a vision for what is good for that collectivity, what is a moral thing to do for that collectivity. Um, and so it, it gives us three elements that I struggle with in my book, which is one, the, um, the community, how you're going to define the community the whole. Second, um, can you um, know the right thing to do, the moral thing to do for all members of the community so that somehow the collectivity um, becomes a, or it continues to be a goal. And thirdly, can you, once you know, can you do something about it? So the question of community, reason, and agency comes out of that. That, can you know, is your reason uh, uh, a, a legitimate instrument to know the good and um for the community and, and whether uh, is there humans have any agency. In other words, do just things just happen uh, as they always do? For instance, if you believe in a, in a modern economic sense of the invisible hand of economics taking care of everything, in a way you're, def you're denying political agency because you think that you can follow a scientific or pseudoscientific law of following your personal interest, and then at the end, the invisible hand will uh, set everything right, rather than some agency sitting and thinking on behalf of the whole what we should be doing and making a decision, making a choice based on a uh, a shared vision, um, or or at least for uh, based on a vision for the whole that this is the right thing to do, the moral thing to do. So. A, an invisible hand theory, for instance, uh, denies politics in the same way that a, determine, uh, 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 a completely deterministic theology uh, in which humans play no role in their own destiny would deny politics. Similarly, an extreme form of elitism in which people have no, uh, people's own thinking about their own lives can have no agency uh, or can have no validity. All of these things um, uh, would deny politics. Uh, and I argue that what ends up happening in the classical age is that some crucial theological debates when uh, Muslim theologians, the mainstream Muslim, that is Sunni Muslim theologians, feel cornered by um, uh, certain arguments are coming from outside and that are internalized by the Mu'tazila, uh, the Acha'ara, the mainstream Muslim Sunni, uh, when in their response to it, they end up denying uh, any role for common sense uh, reason in um, in once in in the life of the community, in the moral, ethical, legal life of the community, and in doing so, um, they try to limit, if not eliminate, uh, the political decision-making, the political thinking uh, for the collectivity. So they end up saying that um, one has to simply follow the letter of the law that they are interpreting in order to follow God's will. Um, but the rulers, in this sense, are nothing but executioners uh, or executives. Uh, of letter of the law, but um, 
that gave rise to to an interesting problem, and also it afforded certain advantages to um, classical Islam. It was a way to uh, prevent rulers from manipulating religious doctrine for their ends, and that's that, and that was something that Muslims were. Uh, classical Islam was admirably able to um, to accomplish, but at the same time, um, by not according legitimacy, by not theorizing about uh, about uh, legitimate rule for political reason, um, they became, I argue, unable to. Um, to, uh, to think of to, to think of uh, alternatives to the, their predicaments, the political predicament of uh, uh, you know, which I talk about. You had to be in political Islamic political history after the first uh, few centuries, as the High Caliphate ends. Um, you have a series of what seems like it. Uh, non-ideal rulers. Uh, now, contemporary, you know, today we call them despots or dictators, and these are all uh, anachronistic and, in fact, incorrect words. But nonetheless, these ulama that I'm writing about uh, clearly recognize that these are non-ideal rulers, um, even though and they were justified only in as much as they upheld the Sharia, they were not the ideal caliph that the ulama always wanted. Um, but at the same time, no, none of the ulama seem to be giving an alternative. Uh, at least nobody goes as far and as systematically uh, does so as systematically as any of that. So that's the art of the book. So, in in this idea of of agency and ideal ideal rule, could you you talk about whether or not politics is something that's inherently corrupt? and the kinds of debates that revolved around uh, that question. Could you say something about that in terms of how scholars thought of politics as something that was like just bad to its core or something that, you know, was, was really part of a, an important moral vision and how these are compatible? Well, I think that there is this tension and that tension is not so much a, an artifact of, 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 uh, so much Islamic history as the very Islamic vision itself of life, which is that one has to be here, but not you know, of this world, but not you know in this world, but not of this world. Uh, you know, one has to you know if you if you look at, for instance, the, some of the constitutive Quranic verses that, uh, or what I call constitutional Quranic verses, in that in the sense that they give a sense of what Islamic collectivity, the Ummah, is about. Uh, they say that you are the best of the community that has been raised for mankind. So you you are both, on the one hand, the best of the community that is devoted to God, but at the same time, you have been raised for a job in this world, as if, which is to, to give God's message to the humankind. Now, the tension here is that being good as a community uh, emphasizes... You know, especially this is being good in or afterlife. So it emphasizes a sense of piety and otherworldliness, uh, a sense of a lack of concern for compromises of this world, a lack of concern for um, thinking too much about this world, which is ephemeral and unreal. Um, so this is, if you will, the pietistic element. But at the same time, one has to get involved in organizing this group of believers so that they could uh, govern themselves because no longer there is there a prophet uh, or, or, or you know, no longer is God ruling them directly through prophets as happened, uh, for instance, according to Muslim tradition, Muslim imagination. This was the case with the Israelites. They would be prophet prophets, but longer the case with Muslims. Um, they must govern themselves, and not only that, but they must 
uh, uh, bring God's message to humankind, which means they must engage in both all kinds of activities from uh, if it if need be war, they must defend themselves, they must, uh, uh, nonetheless, they must be involved in having power, maintaining power, and if possible, expanding that power in this world. And that requires um, compromise, that requires working with um, uh, considerations that are not only otherworldly. So that tension, uh, I argue, uh, it's not so much a contradiction. Some scholars have called it a contradiction, but I think it is a tension. It's a demand for a very delicate balance that um, uh, that is rarely attained. Um, and so one finds that in uh, uh, you know in the early early Islamic period, um, even the time of the third caliph, uh, one begins to see. A, 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 very, a very rapidly expanding empire on the one hand and uh, very pietistic teachings of an otherworldly life on the other um, um, and um, the, the tension becomes greater during the Umayyad period um, and different people respond to it differently um, and as I argue often that early Shia, not I'm not talking about the continued history, but early partisans of Ali were people who were just idealistic, who could not maintain, could not live with that tension. So they thought that the problem was that everything must have been scripted from the very beginning and offered you know, prophetic type of guidance. Uh, infallible guidance must, be, must have been available from the very beginning because any kind of compromise uh, was uh, sort of a great, uh, uh, great loss that one must rebel against, and th and these were not the only Muslims who were rebelling. In fact, they were the un in first during the first century. They were un unimportant um, relative to the Karajites and others who had a similar sort of idealistic approach. Um, so I argue, you know, there I point out that you have two visions that are coming out of um, coming out of this this natural tension. Uh, there's a community-centered vision. And then there is the caliph-centered vision. Uh, the community-centered vision is uh, one that wants to give, retain agency uh, within the community. And um, that vision uh, emphasizes uh, piety and why, you know, being good for the community that requires constant mutual criticism and self-criticism Whereas the caliph-centered vision is um, sort of, uh, look, we got business to do here outside. We are fighting wars outside, and, and we got to keep order. We got to keep this project together. And this is a very, there's an interesting uh, 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 conflict, in fact, between the uh, um, early Umayyads and uh, the companions of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. That comes out in this um, when the companions blame the Umayyads for uh, for becoming turning into kings, um, and and people point out that you know uh, these early companions were were the ones who supported the prophet, uh, and they are certainly the most pious and knowledgeable. Why do you guys have power? And the Umayyads' response is. You guys abandoned the project of the Prophet. The Prophet established something, but in your, you know, you were not able to defend Uthman uh, in his own house out of your piety. What kind of piety is that? You couldn't support, you couldn't protect your own uh, leader. Um, and, and so in your piety, in your pietistic ideals, you're giving up something that's more crucial. Um, so anyway, that tension goes back and forth, and often later Muslims uh, read that history very idealistically, and often the pietistic side ends up winning in the ulama's accounts of the issue, but it's a, it's a far more complex and I think far more interesting uh, tension. And that continues to, to, uh, to, to grow, and I think that 
Um, at some point in time, one could say um, that the there is a break, or a greater break. Uh, I don't think there is ever a complete break between the ulama and the um, sorry between the, the caliphs on the one hand and the community led by the ulama on the other. Um, and as works like Qasim Zamant and others have shown that earlier accounts uh, like Krone and others that suggest that there was a sort of a secularization uh, are not correct. The ulama always remained involved with um, the caliphate so long as the caliphate uh, 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 you know in fact they continued to, to, to be involved with the caliphate um, and in its support um, either critically at first and then when the ulama, when the caliphate loses power and the ulama become its biggest champion so it must continue um, but the community centered vision um, in a way um, is crushed between these two visions uh, perhaps one way to put it would be that on the one hand you have the caliph-centered vision which which which, which demands uh, obedience from the community which for the sake of larger uh, if you will international projects uh, whereas um, after the caliphate uh, and the relationship between the caliphate and the community becomes more tenuous and weaker. Um, the community also ends up, and the community expands and overexpands. Um, the community no longer has agency. Um, the institutions and ideals that give agency to the community come under increasing attack. Um, and uh, what I argue is that a, a variant of community-centered vision emerges, which is a Sunnah-centered vision. And the Sunnah-centered vision, which is what Sunni Islam becomes, um, was that rather than active agency of the community, which is both too unwieldy and, and unpredictable, um, is the community's heritage frozen in the form of the Sunnah that uh, must uh, must remain uh, our ultimate sort, you know, point of our ultimate allegiance. Um, so that this a sunnah is a way to protect and safeguard um, Islam um, and this community-centered version of Islam in the form of a great example of past. Uh, Khulafat, early four caliphs and friend, particular. So this this idea of the caliphate actually and um, what what its what its ideal is, you talk about the term Khalifa as actually having some pretty important uh, in distinctions and in interpretation. Could you say something about that and why it's a difficult word to understand and how people have thought about it historically as a key term? Right. So, um, Khalifa is a word that um, it means a successor, um, not exactly a deputy. Um, and, um, of course, first of all, there are disputes among um, Western scholars about whether um, the early vision of early caliphs was that uh, they saw themselves as as caliphs of God, as deputies of God, in the same way the Prophet Muhammad was uh, was a deputy of God, and, or um, the, the and I support in my book, um, you know, I critique this idea and I say that uh, that, that early in early community caliph and the caliph of the Prophet Muhammad and. Well, you know, um, and so the, the Patricia Crowney's famous claim that uh, the God's caliph uh, depicts uh, Umayyad uh, caliph's self-image was, in fact, uh, she was talking about an exception rather than the rule, and the rule here far more con can be far more confident about that they, these people saw themselves as caliphs of the prophet. Um, 
But uh, when it comes to the leadership of Muslims, caliph, the word caliph was not the chief term that was used. Uh, it was one of the ways to describe the leaders, uh, the leader of Muslims, Amir, uh, was a far more common term that's used. And in the Quran, uh, for instance, a caliph is never used to refer to the leader of Muslims. Um, it is sometimes used to refer to all human beings or Adam and all of his children as caliphs, uh, but never caliphs of God, uh, caliphs of someone that is not clear, and that's why ex early exegetes uh, um, speculate that there were other creation before human beings uh, that humans are caliphs of, and, and so on. Um, so the term that was more commonly used was Amir. Amir al-Mu'mineen became um, common uh, from the time of Umar, as we know. But certainly it was the more commonly used term uh, in the time of Uthman. We have some documentary evidence showing in a, in a contemporary court in China where the leader of Muslims is called Amir and so on. Um, now, later in the Abbasid period and then later in Maya period, term Khalifa uh, becomes more significant um, and um, Sunnis generally accept the term Khalifa uh, as interchangeable with Imam, which just means the leader of Muslims. Uh, theologians are more likely to use the term Imam, um, whereas historians, Muslim, you know, classical historians are more likely to use the term Khalifa. Uh, and in the actual literature, uh, you're more likely to find the term early on an Amir al-Mu'minin and then uh, in the Abbasid period, Khalifa. Um, now, the question around uh, caliphate is that, is it something, um, what does Khalifa mean? Who is the Khalifa leader of? Uh, and is it something that the ulama later concocted? And that, these are the claims that we have seen being made in the modern period. Um, uh, by both some Western historians and 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 and, uh, uh, and some Muslim intellectuals, and um, one thing one can fairly certain say with with fair amount of certainty is that Khilafa, um, which means a common leader of all Muslims was a doctrine that was held by every single Sunni uh, Muslim scholar in the pre-modern period. There is a complete ijma on that issue. There is not a single uh, notable Sunni scholar, um, and I'm using the word Sunni even though it, apply, it applies more generally to all Muslims, uh, all Muslims, uh, Muslim scholars uh, since the classical period have agreed that um, a Khalifa for Muslims is an obligation, and um, the idea that it was something that later Sunni scholars made up, elaborate, you know, and so on—that's in fact entirely incorrect. If something, if, if there, there's something that defines Sunni Islam, it was uh, that there needs to be uh, a Khalifa who, uh, as opposed to the Shiite claim, uh, does not need to be. A, a descendant of Ali or Al-Abu and so on. So for our, our, re, our listeners who might not have the contact, could you say something how an idea like that differs from uh, a Catholic idea about the Pope, for example? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. Um, the Caliph in early literature is defined as um, first of all, in the Quran, the Amir, uh, again, these are interchangeable terms. So Khalifa, Amir al-Mu'min, and uh, Imam. And Amir is defined as somebody who is lil uh, amri minkum in the Quran, that is, one among you. So he is uh, uh, defined as someone who is from among uh, Muslims and not somebody who is special enough to point out. Just one person from among you. And it uh, early reports and both early reports and conduct uh, indicates that Muslims treated their leader as really first among equals, somebody who was filling in 
in, in practical ways in the Jews of the Prophet Muhammad, in that sense, a very important position. But somebody who has been deputed by the by uh, the Muslim community to take care of their job. So Al-Baqillani, a famous theologian, for example, a very important early, early Ashurai theologian, calls him Wakil of the Ummah, a representative of the Ummah. Some others would call him Ajir, which means a wage laborer of, on behalf of the community. Um, and um, the powers of the Caliph are, the, um, are a matter of some speculation, but not, you know, there's not a complete, uh, you know, the agreed, there is, there is enough overlap in various descriptions from various Sunni scholars that you look at um, even Taymiya later or Mawardi or Bakilani and others, they, the general understanding is that this person is uh, not infallible, uh, but this person must have knowledge of uh, religion in a way that gives him a measure of independence um, and that makes obedience to him a, a, an obligation so long as he is uh, commanding that which you know that which does not contradict uh, uh, Islam, um, and um, in religious matters, this person has uh, no ability to legislate on his own. Now the question is, while there is agreement that this person. Uh, does not have ability to legislate, to create the Sharia, to give law, in other words. The question is whether he has the ability to interpret uh, uh, points of disagreement uh, on his own and, and promulgate them, as opposed to sticking to the various other uh, leaders among the ulama who have following. And very early on, these points were not um, uh, elaborated on, or they were not agreed on. Clear, um, you, you find folks uh, who, in fact, uh, seem to be suggesting that the caliph has that power. In fact, the uh, this so-called fifth rightly guided caliph, Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, um, in his, uh, you know, it seems to be in some of his speeches that he thinks that Khalifa must uh, follow Quran and the Sunnah, but after that, he has the ability to interpret the law. Um, Ibn al-Muqaffa, an important writer of the Abbasid period, also seems to suggest uh, just that. But later, the powers of the caliph become more and more reduced uh, in, in, this, in this specific domain, so that the most later scholars, by the time the, the four madhabs are established and the ulama are established, they demand that he must be a mujtahid in his own right, but he cannot force people to uh, abandon their established madhabs and the following of established scholars. Uh, in fact, in most cases, he is he must be a scholar, a mujtahid, uh, within one of those madhabs. So... Now there is an interesting thing that uh, as his history developed, the tradition of the ummah, uh, of the community, becomes, uh, in the eyes of the ulama, uh, comes to constrain the freedom that the caliph is earlier on seen, uh, you know, seems to seems to enjoy. So, on this note of the, I'm sorry to, to, to I, I, now I realize that your question was really about hope. And and Caliph and, and so in that sense uh, he's different from the Pope in that uh, the uh, uh, you know the Caliph in in the sense that he is restricted in, in this freedom to interpret even uh, on matters that are disagreed on, let alone matters in which on which there is uh, there is already an agreement. Uh, he's obviously enjoys much uh, less powers than uh, than the Pope. He is not. On the other hand, he's not. He's the head. He enjoys more power than the Pope in the sense that he's head not only of the religious community um, uh, in the religious sense, but also uh, he is an ideal Muslim uh, Sunni theory. He is a, an actual 
political leader who declares jihad uh, and uh, and appoints uh, officials and so on. And, and so, it, it, on this note of what what the Khalifa should be ideally and in practice, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah weighs, weighs in on this. And one of the things you mentioned is that scholars have debated Ibn Taymiyyah's view on the caliphate. So could we use this opportunity to talk about Ibn Taymiyyah and what he thought of the caliphate? Sure. Um, I mean, this idea that Ibn Taymiyyah said that caliphate is not an obligation is a complete fiction. And I speculate on exactly where it comes from, but uh, it has no basis to it whatsoever. Ibn Taymiyyah, in this sense, is not different from other Sunni scholars. Um, that, uh, you know, one must make do with what one, uh, with, with the leaders one has, uh, but caliphate, caliphate is an obligation on, uh, for the ummah, and if one cannot have uh, a caliph, um, then one must appoint the emirs that one can get. Now, what is the diff- exact difference between a caliphate, a caliph and an emir? is something that Ibn Taymiyyah does not elaborate on that because that was something that was done that had been done by others especially the Ashari writers on the subject especially Al-Juwaini uh, in his book Al-Ghiyati and uh, to some degree Al-Mawardi although I think Al-Juwaini goes further uh, in, in a more uh, in a more precise description so uh, the difference between Khalifa and Amir was pretty clear um, but, but Ibn Taymiyyah writes mostly about Amirs or Blat Al-Amr as he calls them uh, that means those in, in power uh, but the difference between them was taken for granted by Muslims at the time, which was that the Khalifa is the Amir of the entire community. Uh, and if you're ruling over any one part of the community, such as, you know, the Mamluks were in the time of Syria and Egypt, then you can be an Amir. Uh, the, the major difference uh, that uh, between Ibn Taymiyyah and, and others was that Ibn Taymiyyah was farther than anybody else in saying that these Amirs who are ruling over limited territories um, even though we can't, and we can't have the caliph right now, um, one must still make a deal with them. One, and the Sharia still offers them a deal, which makes them legitimate. So they are not illegitimate in the sense that uh, if you're not a Khalifa, uh, then there is no political life for the community. But rather, and this there, there is there is a precedent for this in Al-Jawaini's writings already, but Ibn Taymiyyah goes much further uh, in this, which is that if you don't, uh, that an Amir um, should be able to, uh, should be offered a deal, which is that if you do uh, such and such and such, you uphold the Sharia, uh, then, then uh, Muslims, in fact, religiously owe you uh, obedience in 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 in, in, these, in this limited political sphere. Um, now this is very important uh, because earlier writers, some other writers, um, uh, among the ulama, the most influential ones, uh, were very hesitant to offer any kind of legitimate sphere of political activity. But when it comes to the caliphate, um, Ibn Taymiyyah on that doctrine is is not. Uh, um, fundamentally different. I mean, he is different in the sense that um, he brings a, 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 a fresh evaluation of all, of all the doctrines that had been passed on uh, by the Sunni uh, writers. And, and there are some differences, but on the fundamental question of the obligation of the caliphate, there is no difference. Uh, one important difference is that Ibn Taymiyyah considers the caliphate a rational obligation, it's not merely a ritual, so if the caliph doesn't have power, then calling him caliph, just pretend that he's a caliph, uh, does, does no good. Uh, and this, in this, again, he was not unique. Uh, he was agreeing with al-Juwaini and possibly al-Baqilani before. So the you focus on Ibn Taymiyyah's text about the relationship between revelation and reason. And so could you say something about how this informs his, his view of government and how it should work and how, how you read this text in a way that others haven't previously? Also, for, I mean, Darut al-Aqlub al-Naql, 
is a text that in fact has had, hadn't been by the time I was writing nobody had read it seriously in, in, in English and there was um, certainly not in political sense um, and the reason it's important is I'll, uh, is that it argues that the common believers a, a, a believer's common sense about God in, is actually a reliable guide um, to knowing God's will and practicing Islam. In other words, um, the constructions of the classical period had leaned increasingly in an elitist direction um, in a way that uh, a common Muslim um, was not really able to reason with the text, go to the text and argue um, um, on behalf of what God wanted. And, and a result of that was uh, going too far in that direction had um, sort of desiccated political agency from the from the community, from the ummah. Um, you could say that, uh, you know, the, the, the theologians were interested in safeguarding orthodoxy and they, knowing the tricks of reason, knowing that generally when human when people argue there is no uh, there is no consensus. They had, uh, you know, Sunni theory, uh, influenced also by Sufism in, in its social sphere, had become more and more elitist, so that uh, an ordinary person who did not belong to one of these specific guilds uh, really had very little to say. This was very much against the early spirit of Islam, which was egalitarian, uh, radically so, uh, in some ways. Um, and uh, a healthy political community requires that people are able to think normatively, not just think about their strategies for life. They're always thinking about their interests and strategies, but they're able to think the key word is normatively. They're able to think through whatever norm, the set of norms they to hold up as, or as, as, as the right, you know, and ultimate norm. They're able to tap that norm in order to think about ethical problems, legal problems in their life. And that is what uh, uh, what had um, disappeared increasingly. So the real, I think the real, the greatest contribution of Ibn Taymiyyah in the political sphere was to systematically um, unravel all the arguments that had been made to disenfranchise uh, common Muslims encounter with the texts. Um, and an influence, and it had an impact in the political sphere and also in legal interpretation in his defense of ijtihad. Uh, of course, on this, uh, there's a note of caution that he is quite moderate on the issue. He does not reject the lead of madahib for people who are not learned in it, uh, unlike some later scholars who do that. But uh, Ibn Taymiyyah rejects uh, lead only for sc uh, scholars and affords a measure of a uh, freedom to make ijtihad to ordinary Muslims um, so long as they have sufficient knowledge in their fields. And this is something, again, Samia was not entirely new. Uh, he just brings new life to it and uh, brings uh, more consolidated arguments. Um, so in a way that he brings earlier, you know, he, he brings a new emphasis to the community-centered vision, uh, which had... Uh, never fully died out anywhere. So a couple more things before we wrap up. At the end of the book, you self-consciously tell the reader that you've stopped at a certain point of history and you're not, you're not looking so much at the legacy that came after Ibn Taymiyyah. But you do talk about the possibility for certain projects that can be undertaken in light of your work. So could you say something about things that you're currently working on that pick up from the book or, or things that you hope other scholars pursue based on some of the tools that you have offered? Oh, well, yes, of course. That's the best, uh, you know, best thing one can do. Um, and, and best, uh, uh, reward for one's work is when other people take on some of what you have said. And, and I'm fortunate to say that there are, um, you know, I've, I've uh, friends and, and, and graduate students, um, not of my own, but others who have 
uh, undertaken similar projects that I'm very proud of. My own project is to understand the reception of uh, classical legacy uh, by modern Muslim writers in the 20th century, late 19th, 20th century. Um, in other words, how has uh, Islamic heritage, uh, political heritage, been received or is being received in the modern period? Um, and I believe that this conversation between Ibn Taymiyyah and classical writers um, of, of the, of the uh, uh, previous three or four centuries about which Ibn Taymiyyah is writing, that dialogue is um, a privileged position to understand Islamic classical political thought, rather than picking up, say, Ghazali or Al-Mawabi and saying, this was Islamic political thought. Uh, that is a far more narrow, myopic, and, and inaccurate view, and, and you're more likely to get out of it uh, something that maybe you're not able to tell what was central versus what was contingent, what was specific to one author. A dialogue like that, especially with an attention to with an, with, with attention to the theological uh, and perhaps metaphysical. Commitments. Uh, um, so, so by looking not only at political treatises but also the theological debates, looking at these things together uh, and looking at them in dialogue in conversation gives uh, a sense of Islamic political thought as so much more dynamic, so much uh, richer, and in my view. A, a, an invaluable guide for Muslims for the contemporary period. So if we could stay in the contemporary period for a moment, uh, in the beginning of your book, you talk about uh, the so-called Arab Spring and what's happening in, in Egypt, and even from a first-person perspective, you're, you're in Egypt. Uh, so a two-part question is, did you foresee the type of thing that would be happening in Iraq today? And could you say something about that, just in the sense that this group, ISIS, or the Islamic State now, is trying to reinstate a caliphate? Could you say something about how that relates to your project, and how we might contextualize that in the modern world? Well, I, I, don't, I can't speak intelligently about what's going on, because all I know is a few journalistic reports about what's going on there. But as far as their claim that this is a caliphate, a classical Muslim scholars would have um, laughed at that claim, because a caliphate, by definition, meant that you are the, I mean, the leader of all Muslims. Um, and so the very definition, by definition, if you rule over a territory, um, uh, particular territory of Muslims, uh, you are an Amir, and you may be legitimate ruler, but you cannot be a caliph or an imam um, in the proper sense of the word, uh, except if all Muslims accept you. Now, the only I'm not sure if they are arguing that all other Muslims are non-believers, non-Muslims, but uh, but uh, I don't think. I mean, so in terms of the, the word caliphate, that's what strikes me as as uh, most. Uh, uh, and unplausible about that claim. Yeah. Another well, go ahead, please. On the, uh, on the use of the word caliph is that there is a general confusion about uh, about uh, about this uh, issue of this territoriality in a modern nation state, um, which is part of my. Uh, it's, it's a central part of my main, my next project, which is that, uh, you know, Muslims in Egypt, for example, um, want to claim that, you know, on the one hand, that this is an Egyptian uh, Islamic state, a modern Egyptian Islamic state, um, and, and, and they use parts of the caliphate uh, discourse as... You know, these are the the attributes of Muslim ruler and uh, Muslim caliph, and 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 so somebody like a, a you know a popular Muslim ruler could be a caliph. Um, but even some of, in fact, some uh, uh, 
formidable scholars in the contemporary period would write about how a uh, you know a non-Muslim could not be uh, a ruler of Egypt because uh, you know a non-Muslim couldn't be caliph and so on. And but again, uh, well, that there is a different argument that could be made for for non-Muslims not being able to rule over Muslims. But as far as the caliphate discourse is concerned. Um, it just does not apply and couldn't apply to Egypt or any one particular uh, country um, because um, it, is, uh, it does not accept territoriality. Territoriality is a modern uh, Western concept, and, and, and that's why, you know, uh, political in the modern sense uh, is not something that uh, Muslim scholars of the past have discussed. Um, their concern has always been the Muslim community. Uh, and if Muslim community becomes defined by a uh, territory, um, well, it can no longer be a Muslim community because within a territory, especially in a modern sense, um, you have non-Muslim uh, residents and you have Muslims outside of your boundaries that make it very difficult for you to apply caliphate discourse to uh, the modern nation states. Um, in fact, it's not only the caliphate discourse, but I think uh, many, many of the uh, aspects of the Sharia cannot simply sit with a territorially defined state. Um, so uh, that was a, a confusion that came up again and again, uh, as a, you know, that I saw and noticed again and again in the uh, in the discussions. Uh, after the Arab Spring, after the Arab uprisings, there was a, a debate about what Muslims is, or Muslim Brotherhood are going to do and what their vision is and so on. And um, uh, I felt that Islamic political thought uh, is, is you know, the knowledge of Islamic political thought is so sorely missing um, that the whole debates and um uh, conflicts and feuds were built around uh, non-issues. Well, I think that's it's a really important point and uh, a, a way lots of people will benefit from the book and be able to apply it to modern times. And I think it, it's a really rich study and will uh, be of value to scholars uh, across the board. And thank you so much for chatting with us about it. Thank you very much, Elliot. That was my conversation with Overmir Anjum, Imam Khattab Endowed Chair of Islamic Studies in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at the University of Toledo, about his exciting book, Politics, Law, and Community in Islamic Thought, The Tamian Moment, published by Cambridge University Press in 2012. Thanks for listening. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.